0: to our Super Soul podcast and to O Talks, for our magazine, and for O Daily. We're gonna use this on as many platforms as we can. I'm so excited to talk to you about your new book, Unbound, and it's your story of liberation, you say, and the birth of the Me Too movement. And I'm so proud, I want everybody to know, I chose this for my imprint, for the Oprah imprint. It says an Oprah book right there on the the side. It's been four years since the movement that you founded that originally was called Me Too, unleashed a seismic shift around the world. And now you are here to tell us your story in Unbound. I mean, what was that process like getting here to this moment?
1: Wow, it feels like a lifelong process in some ways. Um, certainly the process of writing this book is the hardest thing I've done, the hardest piece of work I've ever produced.
0: Yeah.
1: It's been, the last four years have been, uh, I keep saying whirlwind, but I think I need a yeah. different word. <laughs> it's hard to describe what it's like to have your work sort of put on the front pages of all the newspapers and just blast across the whole world, but then also have people not really understand it. Yes. So it's it's been interesting. It's been a whirlwind. It's been life-changing. It's been stressful. <laughs> it's been a lot of things.
0: Yeah. I would have to say, as I was reading Unbound, I thought, oh, this had to be majorly cathartic for you, and you cannot come through this process without growing and being a different person than you were when you started. I mean, that's how good... The, the work that you've done in this book is. So, you know, rather than just have questions, I so want people to read this book that I wanna just like, I've gone through it and labeled all the places I wanna talk. And so we're not gonna be able to talk about any, everything, but I just wanna start with this. If you will let me read from page 15 of Unbound, where you begin the book and you say, unkindness is a serial killer. I just want to say just that sentence alone knocked me out. But unkindness is a serial killer, you say. Death in the flesh sometimes seems like a less excruciating way to succumb than the slow and steady venom unleashed by mean-spirited, cruel words and action that poison you over time. I guess... That's why I can't stand the old children's rhyme. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Every time I hear it, I think to myself, that's a lie. You can dodge a rock, but you can't unhear a word. You can't undo the intentional damage that some words have on your mind, body, and spirit. And then you go on to say this, especially a word like ugly. There's a funny way that some people interact with those they deem physically unattractive. Usually, they stare for about a half a beat too long. When they're noticed, they smile a small, guiltily fading smile. And then their eyes dart away, and their posture falls into an unsettling mix of toddler and chimpanzee, as if they don't know where to move next. Suddenly, they're fascinated by the nothingness over your shoulder. I know this act all too well, and I have seen it so often that I can spot it in the split second it takes to pass a stranger on the street. I can read the slight readjustments as discomfort churns through their body. There's just a millisecond of disgust sometimes offset by embarrassment, and then, if confronted by my brief, unrelenting stare, guilt. I know this because I'm ugly. At least that's what the world finds new ways to tell me every day. I was pierced by that. I wasn't ready for you to read that. (laughs) I am pierced by that. And what it took for you to get to that? It took a lot for me to get to that because
1: there's a part of me that has to confront that reality, my reality. You know, I have a very close circle of friends, lovely people who have been my friends for 20 and 30 years. And your friends hold you up and they say things to you all the time like, you're beautiful. Stop it. Don't don't say that. Don't talk badly about yourself. And I and I look in the mirror and I don't see I see something that looks fine. Right. I'm not maybe, you know, a supermodel, but
0: it's okay. You look in the mirror and you see yourself. I
1: see myself and I don't feel any
0: type of way. Right. I'm like, hey,
1: you're you're a cool person. But the world has told me different um, over and over again. And so. Over time, I understand the historical significance of that as a black person. I understand the cultural significance. I understand pop culture, and I intellectually it makes sense, but it doesn't change what it feels like, right? And and dealing with the abuse that I, the the violence and abuse that I dealt with as a child, I let that become the reason I just married all that together. Oh, this must have happened to me because I look differently than everybody else or because people just find all these different ways to keep telling me I'm ugly. And and if you don't like, I never could understand unkindness. It seems really naive to say to some people. And I've been unkind very many times in my life.
0: Yes, I could see. I read every page.
1: Okay. <laughs> I definitely thought, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. But, but just fundamentally, I don't understand unkindness because it's just not It's just not necessary. Like, you don't like the
0: way I look. That's why that line is so powerful, Tarana. Unkindness is a serial killer. Because once it gets put out there into the world, you're unkind to somebody, and then they take that energy, and then they're unkind to somebody else. So tell us about the incident in the store with the young girl and her father, where you first heard the word used to describe yourself I, I, I thought that was such a powerful and impactful yeah. moment it was it, I used to think about it all the time I was
1: um, I was about 12 and I went to the, to the pharmacy to pick up something for my mother and there was it, was it was things simultaneously happening right I was dealing with a whole bunch of stuff in my 12 year old life and I really wanted to be good I just always wanted people to see me as good and a good girl and I behaved myself and I was having a conversation with this little girl who may have been like seven or eight, you know, a, a younger girl than me. And I thought to myself that the father was weird, but we had this lovely conversation as we're moving along the line. I said bye to the little girl, like, OK, bye. She said bye. And then I heard them. I heard the little girl in the line say, oh, daddy, doesn't she look like uh, Amaya? Like, you know, I guess somebody in their life. And this grown man, I'm a child too, right? Yes, <laughs> this grown 12, man 12. says, oh, nah, she could never like a Amaya. That girl is ugly with so much like aggression and, and vitriol. And it was so, and I was just like, <laughs> me, mm-hmm. <laughs> me, is he talking about me? And I, and it's, and it, it made me equate ugly with badness too. Right. You know, um, and that just, it just was this question in my mind. I was a very inquisitive child already. And so I just kept thinking, what is ugly? I don't even really understand what it means, right? I, you see a monster on TV and that's those are—that's clearly yeah. meant to be ugly. But like in people, I look like my mother. I didn't think my mother was ugly. You know, I just, it just was really strange to me, but it sat heavy on my chest. And I started to, like children do, make it make sense with all of these other things. And that was just, the beginning of a really, really, really long and hard period in my life.
0: Yeah, you say in the beginning of the book, the story of how empathy for others, without which the work of Me Too doesn't exist, starts with empathy for that dark place of shame where we keep our stories and where I kept mine. So what was the story of origin of your dark place? of shame. You know, it it started with
1: being molested. I was 7 years old and you know, I think a lot of particularly black girls have this similar experience of knowing right and wrong cuz you kind of get bits and pieces, right? You yes. don't sit on anybody's lap, you put some clothes on when a grown man comes in the house, all of this kind of stuff that tells you that we are responsible to protect ourselves and so when that when that happened to me it just it made it just turned me inside out and i thought oh i'm really bad there must be something about me that's bad that made this person do this to me and even at that age i didn't even think something was done to me i thought i was complicit in that abuse that we right. had done something bad he and this person and i had done something bad and so i just was it just it became a dark place because i was confused about I want to be good in the world. I want people to see me as good. Life was okay. Like I I was a good girl. My family liked me. And now what do I do? If they ever found out how dirty I was and how bad I was, they wouldn't love me.
0: This is the reason why I love Unbound so much. And the truth that you've told is because what you were able to do is something I've been trying to do. And I can't even tell you how many hundreds of conversations I had during the Oprah show. Uh, about sexual violence against children, against women. And the thing that people can't seem to get is that it's not just the act because it's like, why don't you get over it? That happened then and now you're grown. And so what does that matter? They don't get, but you were able to articulate so profoundly that it's not just the act, it's what the act does to you. That's right. That it's the shame that is created. It's the feeling of, of being nasty. It's the feeling of being tainted. It's that it and that taintedness carries over into everything else in your life because now that becomes your worldview. You were able to nail that here. You say literally on page twenty four, I had no real grasp of the gravity of what was happening to me. This is after you had been assaulted at seven, but I knew it wasn't right. It made me feel nasty and dirty and wrong, not realizing that he was wrong and that he was the culprit. I thought, and this was what got me really, I thought we were wrong. And your ability to articulate that is something like uh, it, it, it touched a nerve in me. I was like, oh, yeah, it never even occurred to me that he was wrong because every abuser makes you feel complicit. Absolutely. That's their job is to make you feel complicit. And then you go on to say that I didn't hold my abusers accountable. This is on page 35. I held myself to blame in my mind. They didn't abuse me. I broke the rules. Wow, that was such a light bulb for me too. I was the one who did something wrong. It was this thinking that also kept me from ever identifying as a survivor. I didn't even identify as a victim. Yeah, I had no language.
1: I was just bad, you know, just,
0: yeah. I think what's so wonderful about this, though, Tarana, is that you were able to articulate, too, how it's the culture. And so often our mothers, as I was reading a book, I go, do we have the same mother? Because our our mothers and our aunts are complicit in offering us blame. You know, I grew up as you grew up. It's keep your dress down, keep your legs closed and if now you are violated at set you at 7 me at 9 you are you are the one that's held responsible for that you know and i wonder why is that passed on what do you think the reason for that is that it's passed on generation to generation and you articulated it so well how we have to stop blaming the girls i think it's passed on though and i try to articulate
1: this too about my mother and it's, it's a sense of protection. Right. We know, I think culturally, you, you said something in your book, What Happened to You, which I love as well, I just have to say this one question um, when you say this is why I've known and I've always known this, that everything matters. Yes. Everything that happened to you matters. And the reason why that's important is because whatever happened to my Nana made my Nana try to figure out how to protect my grandma and my grandma, whatever happened to her, made her try to figure out what protection looks like for my mother and so forth and so on. But there are no examples. There's nobody doing the work of interrupting sexual violence in our community People don't see it as a social justice issue. Right. And there's all of this, this, all of these questions and shame around it. So there's just there hasn't been any work, significant work to dismantle that and to to unpack it. And so you have these mothers, particularly these black mothers who are just like it may come out in ways that that harm us and traumatize us. But I think at the heart of it, it really is about I just want you to be safe and I don't have I don't know what to do if you're not. If something does happen to you, I don't know what to do with that. So you're just going to have to do what I did and figure it out. Yeah, and keep your
0: legs closed, keep your dress down, and if you get violated. You know, um, Dr. Shafali Sabari, who wrote The Conscious Parent, which I thought was one of the best parenting books ever done, has re- recently written a book called Radical Awakening, and she talks, too, about sexual assault of women and how she was sexually assaulted as a young girl, and that she suggests that perhaps what should happen is that the women come together, we as the adult women come together and tell these young girls, look, this is what's going to happen. When you get to, the, to a certain age where you are budding and you are, you know, pubescent and you are beginning to look like a woman, you are going to get people who want to assault you. You're going to be touched and you're going to be looked at and you're going to be, you know, catcalled and all of that. And we stand with you. We are here to stand with you instead of, you know, if that happens to you, that's your fault. Look it up. Yeah. Yeah. It would would be such a shift in culture if we could talk
1: about it honestly. And I think that's really what I wanted to do in the book is talk about this honestly so that we can have at least some way have better conversations in our community about it. And it's not, obviously, it's not just the Black community, right? Right. In communities of color, though, we have a particular shroud of secrecy and shame. And I think it is, it falls under the others, because we have so many other things that we're dealing with. And I also think that's why a lot of our mothers who are trying to make ends meet, get the rent paid, you know, deal with whatever their relationship stuff is, is like, I don't have time to try to right. figure this out
0: for you. Um and I'm trying to survive myself. Well, one of the things that you also hit on is that that struck me, and I will forever remember it. You talk about the capacity, that the fact that your mother didn't have the capacity to be and give you to you what you needed is why you work so hard to have the capacity with your own child. And so... I think that word is such an important word, particularly for those of us who grew up uh, as, as, as young girls of color, black girls. And I think uh, what Imani Perry says on the back of the book, that you sing a black girl song. I mean, reading this, I felt so connected to this and I know you and I share this love for, I know why the cage bird sings, but when you're reading this story, growing up as a black girl, under same, some of the same conditions, I feel like you are literally singing our song.
1: Oh, Kyle.
0: That's,
1: not, I, didn't, I didn't, I had no intention of crying. <laughs> <laughs> nor did I, nor did I. And here
0: we are. And here um, we are.
1: That, that just, it means so much to me because I think my life's work, I know my life's work has been directed by the hope that, and, and some of this is problematic for me, right? Because I thought it's too late to save myself, right? It's too late to do anything for me, but if I could stop other little Black girls from feeling what I felt, if I could intervene earlier, if somebody had come to me at 12 and said, it's not your fault, healing is possible, any of those things, it would have changed the, tra- the trajectory of my life. And it just felt like the most important thing in the world to be able to try to do that for other little
0: girls. Somebody actually did did do it. One day you were on the stairs and who was, oh, was Ms. the woman? Ms. Davis, yeah. Miss yeah. Davis saw you and said, come here, baby. And she she yeah. knew something was going on, but she also said, be careful. Right, it's about my father. Yes, because your father will go out and do something to anybody that hurt you. But she knew, don't you think she knew? Oh, she knew,
1: she knew. I can tell in a shift that she put it together like a puzzle really quickly. And I, that's what I'm saying. I think older black women in particular, They've contributed a lot to the trauma that we've carried around this sexual violence. But I also know that they have so much wisdom and they have so much experience that has just brought them into a different understanding about survival than we have.
0: And so as you grew, you say there's no question that self-hate severely limits one's capacity to love fully and wholeheartedly. Capacity and desire are not the same thing especially in discussions of love. I was an adult with a child of my own and a trail of mistakes behind me before I could say with certainty that my mother loved me. And that clarity came from being faced with my own limited capacity. No matter how deep my desire was to love my child, I was still encumbered by the ghosts I had tried to bury. I failed often. If I hadn't had the experiences That I had with my mother, I am not sure I would have fought so hard to build my capacity. Can you talk about that? It's true.
1: I, you know, I haven't. My mother hasn't read the book yet, and Mm. I, I know. (laughs) Um, I intend to have her read it soon. I'm going to give it to her next week, probably. I've just been so nervous about it, but because I want her to be clear, I know it's going to be hard for her to read and hard for her to hear. Some of the things that I'm saying, but I also put that other piece in there because I want her to know that I get it now. I will never really understand her decisions, right? And some of the decisions she made, but I understand what drove her to have to make some decision, whether it was right or wrong. I've been in that place. And like I said, I had the desire to be the best mom ever, I had the desire to make sure my child was free and you know liberated and had this wonderful childhood but I didn't have the capacity because I hadn't dealt with my own trauma I was still carrying shame I was carrying forth the things that I'd learned from my grandma and my mom and my, you know so I I had to unpack that stuff honesty really was the was my honesty and and a real deep just longing to make sure that my child had a different life was what helped me to face that stuff and say, "Oh, I see what the problem is here." I just I just don't know how.
0: <laughs> yes, you know, you had this beautiful line where where you talked about you had you walked around with this back the fuck up is what you say in the book. <laughs> back the fuck up <laughs> written on your forehead and if anybody, you know, didn't read that clearly, they were in for it. And you would have these, you know, you know, fights with people. And you mentioned that there was a moment when the rage overcame the shame. And I wanted to ask, did the rage really overcome the shame or was the shame just manifesting now as rage? That's
1: what it was. The shame, I found a new way. You know, the shame was eating me alive and made me feel like small and unworthy. And the rage gave me a a sense of power. And so I leaned into the rage, but it certainly was the shame manifested as rage. It was not useful rage. I I believe in righteous rage, but this was not righteous. It was not useful. So no, it definitely didn't become something good. I had to learn to get over that. You know, it was just another thing to be like, oh, this is not really helpful. (laughs) This is not helping me. And I don't feel good you know, yeah. again, I, don't, I can get angry, I can have fights, I can yell and scream and curse people out, and then I go home and cry. Or, you know, I feel terrible for days at a time. So that's not useful either.
0: What I want to say to people, again, which you were able to argue, articulate so beautifully here, is that all of that wanting to fight, scream, and cry is because you can't say what you later were able to say in the book, I've been raped. Yeah. I've been violated. I've been hurt, I've been shamed, and I am sorry. So you can't say that because what I want to say to everybody again, as you have so, so so wonderfully said here, is you don't have the language. You just don't have the language. And so all of that shame and hurt and violation comes out as, for many girls, depression, anger, rage. Yep. And you're just raging against the world. Yep. And can I just say,
1: it was what I recognized in the girls that I started working with. Yes. I walk into a space and I I walk into a school and I would ask the counselor, who are the girls that you're about to suspend? Who are the girls that have detention all the time? And it'd be these angry girls who'd be fighting all the time, cursing. And and the teachers would look at them and say, oh, these girls are just, they're just so bad and they just can't. And I'm like, these are children. Children are not inherently bad. Something happened. Yeah. What happened to them? What happened to you? you? And if we would pay more attention to the what happened and dig into that, then I think we can make better lives for children and give them earlier pathways to healing. Let's talk
0: about Heaven. You talk about her uh, beginning on page 137. You met her at a leadership camp. And I want to know, she wanted to tell you about her mother's boyfriend who had been messing with her and you couldn't bear the telling of it at the time. And that girl ended up changing your life. How did she help you bear your truth on the outside? On the outside. Exactly.
1: Heaven. um, And, you know, people ask me all the time. I've never met her again. I've never seen her again. But this child was so much like me. It reminded me so much of myself, except that I didn't have as much freedom as she had, a sense of freedom that she had um, at that age. And I didn't have a person that I trusted the way she trusted me. And you know what I have to remind myself often is that I was 22. <laughs> My child was 23, right? And I keep that as a, as a sort of gauge. And I was a kid who was trying to figure things out, who was just starting to kind of deal with or think about the things that had happened to me. And here was heaven believing me You know, I said, I love you and I'm your family and I want to make you a leader and I want to help you. And I meant those things, but I think I hadn't done enough of the work. I think this is the truth for a lot of people who mean well and want to help the world and want to go out and change things, that you have to do some self-work before you can tackle that. And she called me on it, not even intentionally, right? She She just believed me. She said, oh, you love me? Well, this is what I think love looks like. It looks like you holding space for me and me being, being able to unburden myself of this thing that I've been holding. And I was like, oh, didn't really prepare for that. I'm sorry. And it just ripped me apart. But I but I also not enough to make me have like an epiphany in the moment and say, please child, let me help you. I just was like, I, I can't. I'm so sorry. Because At 22,
0: you still weren't able to speak out loud what had happened to you because there's still so much shame about it. That's why our stories are so similar. And then the thing that freed you is the same thing that that, that did it for me. You picked up I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. Can we just have a shout? <laughs> Can we have a shout? Can we have Can a we shout have- to Maya Angelou?
1: I I yes. I could shout every day for the rest of my life because it's also why writing a book has always been important to me. Um, not that I could ever even try to begin to do what she did but the <laughs> sorry. the feeling of I loved reading I love books and you know I say that in there but the
0: feeling of picking up a book not knowing what to expect, and your mother had all this beautiful black literature, Toni Morrison, Maya Angelou, Alice Walker, all yeah. of them, you house, know, books exactly. in the house. And your yeah. mother had tried to keep, uh, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings from you because she thought- Too much, too grown. Too much, mm-hmm. not knowing that that had already happened to you. Yeah, it already
1: happened. And I being, you know, whatever, I, yeah. snuck in, I was going to say fast,
0: but I'm trying not to say that, but I snuck yeah. into the book- that's a label we all. That's a label we were all given. You're just fast. Yeah. You're just too fast.
1: Right. You're too fast. And I and I read it and I just I could not believe what I was reading. I also didn't really understand Maya Angela as a real person. Yes. she was just a person in a book. So I I was just like, oh my God, there's somebody. There's somebody else. There's somebody else. I just I couldn't. I just I remember reading it and rereading. It. In fact, I read that chapter so much. Yeah. That when I reread the book later, I was like, oh, I don't even remember these parts. <laughs> <laughs> I got it.
0: I got it. I know exactly what you mean. I had the exact same revelation. It was the first time it ever occurred to me that this was happening to somebody else or had happened to somebody else other than, than, than me.
1: Yeah. And then in high school, when, you know, I write this in the book too, when I heard her voice and made this connection to this real person who I had, you know, I'd read her books and I could recite her poetry. And I felt like I was a little arrogant about that, but her voice was the second shift. It felt like she was light, right? She felt lighter. She felt joyous. She felt comfortable in her skin. She felt wise. All of this I'm hearing in her voice, she was laughing. And I just thought, how, how? All of these years that I, from when I read the book to when I heard her voice, I thought, we have a secret, right? I know who this is. I know what this is like. We have a secret. And I had been like on a, a fake it till you make it kind of thing. I'm like, well, I'm just going to pretend to be really, really good. So people won't, you know, know what
0: what I really am. And then here she was not pretending. Not pretending and There's a line that you say, why isn't she out here spitting and cursing at white folks all the time? Why is she so calm and so filled with joy? Which made me tear up because, you know, joy was her favorite word. Really? Yes, it's her favorite word. And it's how she signed every autograph, every book, every piece of paper, everything would be a big J-O-Y and exclamation point. That's right. I have a signed book by her. You're right. It does say that. I didn't, I didn't
1: realize that, but it, but that's what I felt. And it was so revealing to me. This was another big shift for me because I thought, as I said, how does she manage that? How, I know that this doesn't go anywhere. At least it hasn't gone anywhere. So can these two things exist at the same time? Can I feel actual joy? At the same time that I'm feeling all of this pain, I don't understand it. And I just became a little bit obsessed
0: (laughs) with her. her. Tell me this, Tarana, were you able to connect your rage and your anxiety and all of the feelings, emotions, were you able to connect that to this is, I'm feeling this because of what happened to me when I was seven and and what happened to me when I was nine and what happened to me when I was 11? Not until I was older. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, not until I was much older.
1: I just thought this is what girls from the Bronx do. This is how we are. We're just, you know, we fight. We have attitudes. But I thankfully read so much too that I had another sort of worldview. Mm-hmm. And I had this political view worldview that was forming. And I think it just made me ask more questions and ask more questions. And as I met people, and started thinking more about it. I was much older when I realized, oh, that acting out, that the 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 all of those things, this is clearly coming back to this one, these these are series of
0: events. Well, yeah. That that it changes your worldview, actually. Certainly your worldview and your your view of yourself, and then therefore how you see yourself, I believe that the rest of the world is 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 now seeing you. And in everybody's case, mine as well as yours. There's always one person, one instance, one something. Before I was writing What Happened to You, I was having the conversation with Dr. Bruce Perry, who was also the neuroscientist author of that book. And I was saying, well, I don't even understand. How, how did I make it? How did I get through? He goes, you must have had somebody. Yeah. All you need is one person to believe in you, to see you, to see you as you want to see yourself. And that will be enough because that's what community and connection does uh, for people. And for you, it was the 21C program when you first went and heard that there's a such thing as leadership, and I can be one.
1: Yeah. It was everything. It was it was a new it was almost like I can shift identities. I was so busy trying to be good and, I'm, and good wasn't working. And high school kind of blew that out the water. And then I found this work and I thought, oh, my goodness. And when I speak, people listen. And these people, these, these adults are telling me I'm a leader right now. Not you can be, but you are a leader right now. And you will be in the twenty first century, and it just clicked for me. And and I thought, I want to put everything into this. This is going to make me whole again, you know. And it it didn't, but it was definitely part of the work. But it was the beginning.
0: It was a it was the thing that gave you the spark. So tell us about that moment. You at yeah, as as you're talking to your your you go through this process of like how to ask for your mother and the different phases and what mood she has to be in and. How are you going to get her to say yes? And coming back, I think we had the same mother. Uh, and so you go away on your first trip and you walk into this room and there are all these kids who are not like anything you've experienced before. And they're excited and they're chanting. Joyous. Joyous. <laughs> yes. Because beside what happened to me,
1: I'm, you know, I think people don't also realize in, in a lot of inner city communities, urban communities, there's a bunch of young people who have a lot of the same trauma. Everybody's they, going through the same stuff. Everybody's going through something. Or I had other stuff. I had, you know, my, my brother had been killed. I had, I have been dealing with other life events. Um, and we, a lot of us are just angry. And, and it became, I don't want to say cool, because that's kind of cliche, but it just became acceptable for to be that young and that angry. And so to see these teenagers who are our age dancing to drums and jumping on chairs and singing, and boys and girls, right? Singing out loud and laughing. And I'm even we like, what is this corny nonsense? You know, like at first, that's the New York, and I was like, this is corny. What are they doing? But it was also like my heart was quickening. <laughs> I was like, who are these kids? This is amazing. And then Miss Sanders came out and she just, was nothing like I'd ever seen before. She just was a ball of fire. And all of that fire she was willing to share. And like it was like she was going around and touching everybody and giving us the fire. And it was, I was in love really and truly. I just fell in love and yeah. it felt like a saving grace. And it was, it was very much a saving grace.
0: Well, the reason why I love that story is because we are all or can be saving graces for each other. And we don't even recognize when that happens. I mean, I remember feeling that same thing when Diana Ross and the Supremes were on the Ed Sullivan show for the first time. And it was the first time I'd seen Black women on television that were beautiful, you know? And seeing them was like, whoa, that is possible. And I want some of that. Whatever that is, I want some of that. So that's what you felt when you saw Miss Sanders, that kind of leadership and that she's able to do that not by singing but just with by her voice by speaking and then there was this revelatory that was a big revelatory moment for you uh, because we're getting to literally the story of liberation and the birth of the me too movement and so what is wonderful about what you've been able to offer us in unbound is that we see the different layers of your becoming so that first moment uh, of leadership, that gets sparked. And then you're in college and Rodney King happens, something that the whole country recognized as, as, as something tragic happening. And the fact that that was filmed, it could not be, you know, denied that it happened. And tell us how uh, Rodney King literally changed the trajectory for
1: you. That was, an, again, another big moment. I'm in college and I've been in 21st century. So we had done organizing. I've been organizing since high school. Um, and, you know, New York, we had our own. We had our moments with Yusef yeah. Hawkins um, in, the, in the Central Park Five. So I'd organized stuff in high school. But when when Rodney King happened, I was in Alabama at Alabama State. And it just didn't feel like people were moving and, and, and responding, uh, you know, enough. There was, but this is this is my hyper <laughs> like hyperness. But it was again Ms. Sanders who allowed me to go on this stage in front of my school and really on television in front of media to talk about not just Rodney King, but Latasha Harlan, who had been shot. And I just thought we have to we have the power. And I was it was my moment of sort of taking what 21st century had given to me and bursting on the stage, right? And saying we have the power right now to do something. We are leaders. We need to speak to this. We need to do something right now. This is unacceptable. And we get to say it's unacceptable. And I just felt it was it was such a. Um, I don't I don't have the right word, but it was such a big moment for me because I like to play the background. right? It kind of goes back to the ugly thing. I didn't like to be in the spotlight. I didn't want to be the one on the microphone. I didn't want to you know, be noticed too much. But I would write the talking points, you know, or I would coach the person going on stage. I wasn't that person. And that helped me come out of another, you know, reveal another layer of leadership for me. It was, it was great.
0: Yeah, d- could you feel in that moment that there's something here that I'm going to be doing the rest of my life? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I felt it probably before that
1: moment. I think that moment was a realization. No matter what I do, I can't run from this. I can't yeah. run from, when there is an injustice, there's a part of me that has to speak to it, that has to react, has to respond. And no matter what you try to do, this is a part of who you are. And, it, and I think that moment also solidified that for me.
0: And then uh, you got pregnant with your child, Kaya, when you were 23, right?
1: 23, yeah.
0: Yeah, the same age that they are now. Uh, while you were an activist living in Selma, And there was that moment where you had this on again, off again relationship with Kaya's father. And then there was that moment where he literally has you by the braids between his legs. And did you think you were going to die?
1: I don't know if I thought I was going to die, but I certainly thought it was going to be a battle royal that he had. I was pregnant. So, you know, you read in a book, we had fought before and I thought that was normal at the time but now I couldn't fight because I was pregnant. And so I thought I might lose my baby. I might, you know, I don't know how this is gonna end, but he was so he was so far gone that um, it was so scary. It was
0: just incredibly scary. And so you write on page 177, you say, I've been trying to twist this man's debilitating mix of toxicity his unresolved trauma, and longing for belonging into love since before I could even understand what I was up against. I genuinely felt connected to him, but in that moment, with another human being growing inside of me, I felt more connected to my child. I was more invested in my child having a life free of the things that I was just starting to myself untangle from. When it came down to it, I chose not to close my eyes to what was clear. I chose to see what was different and I chose my baby. I just wanted to say that again, the toxic relationships that so many women are involved in stem back from the toxicity of your very first violation. I mean, why do you put up with men treating you that way? is because you don't, because you really don't even know what love looks like. You don't know what it looks like. And quite frankly, this, this whole thing about the
1: lineage, right. And it was, it was what I had seen in my home, around my home. I thought the fights that we had were normal because I had seen that kind of violence around me. And it's like, you know, in the eighties, we had the burning bed. If it wasn't a burning bed situation, right. Like, that's what abuse looks like. This is not abuse. This is just a fight. Right. But also that need to, when you want to feel good, part of feeling good is being loved, right? Somebody loving you makes you feel like you're a good person. And so I desperately wanted that. And he just wasn't the person.
0: Well, did something come over you in that moment? I think that was a big deciding moment. Because as you know, so many people in our community and many other communities choose the man over the child.
1: So I had been in a situations in my life and you you know I read it you read it in a book where the man was chosen over me where I felt like my stepfather who I you know had a long relationship with that ended well but started really really tumultuous um I just felt like my mom chose him over me and I knew what that felt like and I could not okay sorry I could not fathom this early the child wasn't even born yet I wanted to be intentional the word I use all the time when people say oh you did such a great job with your child what did you do and I said I didn't know what I was doing but I made sure that the ideas that I had in my head I was very intentional I was intentional about who I exposed them to where they lived what I did and it started in that moment it was "I, I have to do better for this
0: baby than I did for myself I have to And, you know, and the thing that you were talking about with your mother's partner that came after Mr. West, um, that moment where you had been talking loud or you'd been singing or something in the house and then he told you to shut up and you thought your mother would stand up and defend you and she didn't. Instead, she told you to go to her room. That was the choosing. That was the moment. Yeah. 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 And and I don't,
1: you know, I I have found ways to forgive that and to say yeah. I get it now because
0: the love, the longing for the love is yeah. that feeling is so hard to fight. Yeah. But it's so interesting. Uh, the reason I said, oh, my God, do we have the same mother? And you when you walk into a room with other young teenage girls who have also had their lives ravaged by mother's boyfriends or cousins or uncles, because as Sophia says in The Color Purple, Girl, child, ain't safe in a world full of men's. Uh, that when you, you recognize... I just want to that, say you've made my
1: life just now, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you,
0: you, you, you recognize very clearly when you are not the one, when you are not the apple of your mother's eye, when somebody else holds that space and you don't. Yeah, And that too compounds. It's like compounded abuse. Yes,
1: it is. It is. When you were talking earlier about it's the act, right? There's the actual violence, but the violence that happens after it, particularly if if you're not able to start immediately trying to figure out what healing looks like, if somebody's not intervening and telling you that it's, you know, all of these good things to put you on that path, then you're trying to figure it out yourself. And so
0: if you're a child at seven, eight, nine, you don't have the language. That's what I keep saying to people. And, and, and one of the reasons you don't tell is because you don't have the language. And also those of us, what I understood so clearly from Unbound, it has been ingrained into us that it is our fault. It's not even his fault. It's just our fault because you didn't keep your dress down and you didn't keep your legs closed. And so you don't want to be blamed for that. No. I, I re- remember
1: we had a church ministry some years ago for survivors of sexual violence, and they said, we're going to do a practice around forgiveness. And they said, you know, you have to forgive in order to move on. And the, people were talking about forgiving their abusers. And I said, I've never thought about forgiving my abuser because I didn't blame them. I, I mean, I hated them and I and I felt strongly about them, but I didn't necessarily blame them in a way where I needed to, eventually I I had to go through a process of sort of understanding and then forgiving. But initially I thought, this is all me.
0: Wow. Our conversation will continue in the next episode. You can listen by downloading part two. I'm Oprah Winfrey and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening.